All right, well, uh, whether you're watching at home or you're here in the room with us, we're going to do similarly to what we did last week, which is that I'm going to, rather than reading the passage here that we're going to look at tonight, I'm going to let you read the passage both here in the room. You can pause the video in order to read it uh, where you are at home. But here's, let me give you one warning. Last week, we practiced King Ahasuerus. Uh, in order to make sure we got that right. This week, there are like 14 tricky names in this, which is part of the reason why I'm going to let you read it so I don't have to manage all those. Um, but if, if it's helpful, you can just say, the most trusted ones were these people, and then just skip to the start of the next sentence. That's in the middle of verse 14. So it's Esther chapter 1. Go ahead and start in verse 9 again. We ended with that verse last week, but we're going to start with it this week. So start in verse 9 and read down through the end of chapter 1. It'll take a little bit of time. That's okay. You can pause the video and do it there at home and then pray at, uh, at home there before we jump back in and here in the room when, you're, uh, when it seems like we're all done reading, I'll pray and then we'll start to take a look at this passage. All right, I want you to go somewhere with me, and this might be um, a, a recent sort of reality in, your, in the life of your family. It might be something that is more distant in your family's past. It could be something that you've not yet experienced in life, but you're in the car. It's been a long day. You got your child into a car seat you were actually kind of hoping that the drive would put them to sleep so you could have a few minutes of quiet. And then from the back seat, a little voice says, does God have legs? Or did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That little voice says, what do you think God is doing in heaven right now? Maybe your particularly imaginative child says, does, does God drive a race car? Or did God make spaceships? Is Jesus stronger than daddy? Or maybe it's like bedtime and your child is clearly stalling. Why do I have to go to bed? Does God sleep? You're in kind of exasperated frustration because this moment is not the one you want right now. You want something different from your child in this moment, mostly either that they would fall asleep in the car or go to bed at the end of the night and just let you move on with whatever was the next thing. Maybe you've got an older child, a high school student. Maybe it's a coworker or a relative who you've tried to share the gospel with before and it's not gone anywhere. And then all of a sudden they spring on you. Why does evil and suffering exist if God is good? If God's all-powerful, why wouldn't he just put an end to this pandemic? How can I be sure that the Bible is true or accurate? Why hasn't this thing that I've been praying about for a long time happened? The question I want us to talk about tonight is, what is the impact of those seemingly tedious kind of daily conversations. You might have a child who's particularly inquisitive. You might have a coworker or a relative who leverages those questions in order to be particularly combative. What's the impact of those? 
Why should we think a little bit harder about those moments rather than just kind of blowing through them in order to go on with our day? This section of Esther, and actually all of the book of Esther, has something very powerful and very clear to say about those kinds of daily moments. We framed the book of Esther last week, if you started the series with us, uh, through a quote from a commentator named Karen Jobis. She says this about God. God is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Omnipotently present where he is most conspicuously absent. Look, when your child asks you, does God have legs? doesn't feel like God is just busting the door open for you to have some wildly profound conversation with your four-year-old about the fact that God doesn't have a body, but he did come in Jesus who took on a body. And at that moment, stacked on a bunch of other moments, could be what your child either does or does not remember, but the Lord uses to draw out the truth of who he is. What's the impact of all of those seemingly insignificant moments. Well, God's omnipotently present, even where he is most conspicuously absent. I want to kind of walk us through the second half of Esther chapter one. And we're not necessarily going to go verse by verse. You read this story. We all are capable of reading stories. I just want to point out some highlights, almost like a tour guide, like you're walking through the White House or something, and they point out things that you might miss if the tour guide wasn't present. So let's take note of a few things. Remember, the point here is that God is teaching us something about himself. This is the first section of a couple where there's clearly something that could be said about gender relationships, but that's not the main point. Esther later is going to have something to say about racial tension between the people of Persia and the people of God, the Jewish people. But that's not the main point. The book's primarily a statement about God. Those other issues are present, but the author never even draws our attention to them, makes no comment about them, says nothing in regard to them. So it would be wrong for us to make those the primary point. They're worth noticing, worth observing, but they're not the main thing that we're supposed to see. And it's a little bit difficult here in Esther chapter one because Vashti, the king's initial wife, is treated in a way that's very hard to swallow. The author tells us nothing about who she is, what she says, what she thinks. But like all the other characters in this story, the point is not to learn something about Vashti. The point is to look through Vashti and to learn something about God. And that's the same for King Ahasuerus. That's the same for Mordecai and Haman and for Esther. So what is Vashti's role in the story? Well, it's twofold. Number one, right here in just a few verses, Vashti provides a kind of foil to King Ahasuerus. The first eight verses of Esther chapter one set up the fact that Ahasuerus is unbelievably arrogant. He's got abundance unlike anyone else before him. He's got authority that he can wield in almost like an unchecked power kind of way. And then his wife just flat out tells him no. 
I'm not coming in to your party. You and your pals are all together. You're all drunk. You've been partying for a very long time. You want me to come in wearing my crown, and I'm not going to do it. And what does he do in response? This, this powerful, arrogant, attention-seeking man, he, th- he throws a temper tantrum. He creates a law that he cannot possibly enforce. He lets the whole kingdom know, actually, that his authority has little impact within the walls of his home. Did he have to let the whole kingdom know that Vashti said no to coming to the party? He absolutely didn't have to. But because he wants attention and wants to kind of wield authority, he lets the whole kingdom in on what happened within his own home in a way that he hopes enforces a law, but really just embarrasses himself. She's a foil. She's also a forerunner to Esther because she provides a model for just how delicate Esther's situation is going to be. Vashti loses her place as queen because she doesn't appear before the king. Esther knows she could lose her life by trying to appear without being invited. Vashti provides this sort of sinister warning. How delicate of a situation is it to do something that the king did not tell you you could do? That's what Vashti is setting up for us. Then he makes a law about all the women in the kingdom. What's going to stop him from making a law a few chapters later about all the Hebrew Jewish people in the kingdom? While Vashti demonstrates the landmines associated with being a woman in this atmosphere, Esther is going to be carrying that reality alongside the fact that she's also not Persian. That's very delicate. And the delicacy of Esther's situation with the king ought to highlight the certainty of that situation in the hands of a sovereign, omnipotent, providential God. It appears very delicate. It's actually very certain. Another thing to notice, this whole situation for King Ahasuerus is political, The likely setting of this party, all 187 days of it, is a war council with his top officials before an attempt to overtake the Greek empire. That attempt would ultimately fail. He needs to impress these leaders in order for them to join his cause in a very enthusiastic kind of manner. Vashti is trotted out at the end of that whole party and that whole attempt as one more piece to what is essentially a governmental strategy. The author even highlights this reality in the way that Vashti and Ahasuerus are talked about in relationship to one another. It's just King Ahasuerus, Queen Vashti. Their political title is always ascribed to them until when Vashti loses hers. That's the only time her name is used separate from her title. What happens when the king wants Vashti to come to the party? Does he walk over to where she's hosting her own party and say, hey, honey, would you be willing to come over? No, he sends seven people over there in a show of power to bring her. And then what happens when she doesn't come? Does he say, hold on, let me go talk to my wife? No, he gathers up some of his buddies and he says, let's make a law about this. What do you guys think? What do I have the power to do? And they say, 
let's issue a decree about all the households in all of Persia. His knee-jerk reaction is, how do I handle this politically? What's the best PR move? A couple other items. The purpose here is not to moralize the story. Look, Ahasuerus is drunk. In his drunkenness, he makes a very rash decision in relationship to his wife. But the point is not to make a statement about drunkenness. The dynamics between Queen Vashti and King Ahasuerus are obviously intriguing and appear to be somewhat tenuous. But the main point of the story isn't supposed to be an illustration or a discussion about marriage. Ahasuerus has advisors that are at best questionable. How do we know they're questionable? What do they actually want to protect when they make this law? That their own wives won't do the same thing that Queen Vashti did. He's got questionable advisors at best, but the point of the story is not to make a statement about the kinds of people we surround ourselves with. We could take other portions of scripture that speak very clearly about alcohol and drunkenness, that speak very clearly about the kind of company and the wise counsel that we keep around ourselves, that speak very clearly about what a God-glorifying, gospel-centered marriage looks like. But that's not the point of this particular story. And to try to make those the point of this particular story would be to misuse it. We read a biblical narrative in light of an overarching theological truth. And the theological truth here is about sovereignty and providence. We're going to talk about providence a lot over the course of this book. And so here's a simple definition for what providence means in theological sort of language. That God is working in invisible ways to achieve his eternal purposes. God's sovereign providence is at work in this story. That sovereign providence is at work achieving the purposes and upholding the promises of God regardless of an individual's moral uprightness. If it didn't, God would be in a serious pickle. Think about the world we live in today. If God weren't able to work and move his purposes forward regardless of humanity's moral uprightness, I think we would all look around and and say, the fulfillment of God's plans are a no-go. Look at all the sin. Look at all the brokenness. Look at how many people don't love the Lord and try to honor him. And yet the truth remains. God is working in invisible ways to achieve his eternal purposes. This is one of the reasons why, though we can, you know, vote in particular ways and hope for certain candidates to win elections, whether they be on a national or a local scale, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for us as Christians to rail against the results. God's doing something, and we might not like the way that it looks initially. We might not be huge fans of the way it played itself out. But if we believe what the Bible has to say about who God is, then we have to be willing to trust that despite broken people in places of power, that God is working providentially to fulfill his purposes. That sovereign providence is at work regardless of an individual's bent toward God. God's at work even among those who do not want to cooperate with him. God is at work even among those who give absolutely no credence to the fact that God even exists. We know this to be the case, right? In the United States of America, roughly 77.5% of people would claim Christianity in some form. 
In countries like Nicaragua or Honduras or Costa Rica, that percentage is above 95%. But in countries like Afghanistan or Morocco or Bhutan, Tunisia, Tajikistan, Turkey or Pakistan, it's less than 1%. God is equally sovereign and just as providentially active in the countries where less than 1% ascribe to the Lord and recognize him as king of the universe, savior of the world, as he is in a place where 95% or more do so. Even in Persia, with a leader who has ego issues, marital issues, gender issues, public policy issues, race issues, God is still at work and he will not be thwarted. One of the great mysteries and comforts of God's providence and one of the great truths we see in all of the Old Testament narratives is that God is working despite the sin and the brokenness of those that he works through. And so what comes into focus in the second half of Esther chapter one? Some statements about power. Power in the hands of broken people. Power in the hands of a holy God. Look, broken people leverage limited power for broken purposes. Ahasuerus is an example. Why have Vashti come into the party? Selfish gain, so that he looks good. Why remove Vashti from her role? Selfish gain, because she embarrassed him, and now he needs to reassert the fact that he is in control. Why institute the decree that he does in all of the homes in Persia? Selfish gain, not only on the part of Ahasuerus, but all the men who gathered in the room in order to help him put that decree into place. You want other biblical examples of broken people leveraging limited power for broken purposes? You don't have to look very far. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. King Herod. Zacchaeus before Jesus interacts with him and he has a heart change. Paul before he's Paul when he's Saul. The Pharisees. Scripture is full of broken people trying to leverage their limited worldly power for broken purposes. When left to our own flesh, we use whatever power it is that we have in whatever spheres of life that we have for personal selfish reasons. It's how we're wired. We see that in all spheres of life. A boss who lords their power over those they manage, mostly for the sake of making themselves look good. A husband who manipulates and controls his wife and kids. A political leader whose interest is mostly concerned with posturing, maintaining position and influence. An industry that exploits people for profits. A society or a government that oppresses groups of people. In any power dynamic, someone is benefiting. When broken people who are untransformed by grace or at the top of those power dynamics, you can fairly safely assume that the beneficiary is most likely the one in power. Ahasuerish gives us that picture and Vashti is the one who goes in, into the story, not into the room, but enters into the story and displays that reality. But that in broken people can be transformed because there's another power dynamic at play in the story. And it's one that is never brought to the surface. It's never mentioned. He's not named, but it's the power that God leverages. 
providential power because a holy God leverages unlimited power for holy purposes. Remember, the story is ultimately teaching us about God, not about Ahasuerus, not about Vashti. And that means that the actions of this scene ought to draw our attention to the reality of God, who he is, how he operates in the world, and what that means for us. See what a holy God leveraging unlimited power for holy purposes does. Ahasuerus takes the lovely Queen Vashti, as she's described. Her name literally means beautiful. Ahasuerus takes the lovely and tries to use it for an unlovely purpose. God, in his holy purposes, takes the unlovely, sinful, broken people and makes them beautiful by covering them in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he does so at the expense of his son. That's a holy God leveraging unlimited power for a holy purpose. God makes a promise very early in the Bible that he is going to leverage power over all the people of the earth, not to conquer and subdue them, but in order to bless them. Ahasuerus is the opposite. He wants to conquer people. God is going to throw a banquet one day. And he's going to invite the lovely who've been made lovely by Christ into that banquet, not to leer at them for his own benefit, but to lavish grace and mercy upon them. That's a holy God leveraging unlimited power for holy purposes. And it stands in stark contrast to what we see from Ahasuerus. God's purposes are never evil or tainted with sin. There's no brokenness within them. And that means we can be confident that in any singular instance, he's invisibly, providentially, sovereignly working toward a holy whole. Even when the individual pieces or the individual players seem to be acting in ways that are contradictory to the character of God. And we can be intellectually honest with ourselves here. More often than not, those providential acts and those providential purposes are far less clear than we would like them to be. We can't see the big picture. The broken pieces are more apparent than the perfect whole. It's like for most of our lives, we're looking at a counter with raw eggs, some baking powder, some flour, vanilla extract that smells great but tastes terrible, some salt, some sugar, knowing that none of it on its own tastes particularly great, but there's cake on the other side when you put them all together. More often than not, what we see are the broken pieces. And they don't look particularly appetizing at times. But if we had the ability to see the mixture of all of those things together, we'd see a perfect whole. That's beautiful and holy. That's a holy God leveraging unlimited power for holy purposes. And as Christians, those who have been transformed by grace, our lives and our influence, our use of power ought to be patterned not off our sin in flesh, but off of that kind of power. That holy power that's extended grace to us 
The grace that saved us is the grace that transforms us. And it's the grace that both fuels and forms the way we leverage what limited power we have in life. Sanctified people leverage their limited power in light of a holy example and in light of holy purposes. Christ is not only the example we look to and say, that's what it looks like to use leverage power well and serve people and use it to lift them up, but he's also the power that makes it possible. Oftentimes, we need our motivations to be checked. Even the most sanctified person is given to moments of selfish pursuit. We need the lens of scripture. We need a receptivity to the convicting and illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit to check our motives to check why it is that we're using power the way that we are. We need brothers and sisters who are willing to look into our lives and any of our spheres of influence and point out where something is awry, where we're using, whether it be our family structure, whether it be something within our office place, it could be a more public role. We need someone who's willing to look into our lives and lovingly and full of grace say, I think you might be doing that for selfish gain. It's hard to hear those things. I'll, I'll just speak personally. I have a tendency at times to want to dig in on something, a decision that was made, a direction that I'm heading, simply because someone else isn't going along. And I'll just get into like a battle of wills with that person. Maybe my direction actually isn't good. Or maybe there's something wiser that could be done. And it's like, I just want to dig in because I will prove that I'm willing to hang on longer than you are. That's selfish. And I need people who are willing to speak into my life in those times and say, what are you doing? This this isn't serving any purpose. I need the lens of scripture to convict that and bring humility back into my life. I need the grace of God to soften me in those ways and then to empower me to walk in a different direction? How is it as Christians that we live in light of this sort of sovereign providence? If God's going to accomplish everything in the world that his purposes have set out for, why would I not just run straight ahead doing whatever I want to do and know that God's gonna make it all work out in the end? That would be one way that you could approach life. I would suggest that the reason is this. Think about floating along in a river. You're going to end up where that river wants you to end up. Eventually, it will grind down your swimming ability if you try to swim into the stream until you can no longer do it and then it will brush you where you want to go. Or you could just throw an inner tube on that baby, lay back and let it just take you along for the ride. The question is, in the way that we live our lives, are we thrashing against the providence of God, the purposes that he has in the world, the callings that he's placed on our lives as Christians, or in humility, by the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are we throwing an inner tube onto that and saying, Lord, take me where you will. Do with my life what you will. One last piece here. There is providential power in seemingly insignificant singular moments. The story highlights a broken person leveraging limited power for 
a broken purpose, but he can only do so much because a holy God is leveraging unlimited power and he is completely in control. So Ahasuerus can't even control the events of his one party. Meanwhile, God's controlling all the events of this story and all the events of history in order to move his purposes forward. This story begins with events that are not out of the ordinary for anyone in this kingdom of Persia. The king throws a party. He's showing off his wealth and his abundance. He's staging a military campaign. Then he throws another party to celebrate the party that he just threw. Then he invites the queen to come in and visit the party. And the queen says, no, what we've basically got in Esther chapter one is like tabloid fodder that you would stand at the grocery store line and kind of mindlessly look at while you're waiting for your turn to check out. Then we've got a change in the queen. For a Jewish person living in Persia, this isn't a big blip on the radar. Maybe it'd be like, an entertainment tonight kind of interest. Gets a little more than a tabloid. And yet there's something huge at play. One of the main moments that we know of from the book of Esther is that Mordecai tells Esther that going into the king is this moment that maybe you've been raised up for such a time as this. And we think there's the moment where God's at work. But that moment never happens if Vashti doesn't say, I'm not coming into your party. Because without Vashti's moment, Esther never becomes queen. Esther's not in a position to save her people. And that would mean that God's people no longer exist. No Jesus, no blessing to all the nations of the earth. Undo one moment, you unravel the entire story. It sets up everything that happens from this point forward. No defiance from Vashti, no deliverance through Esther. What's the culmination of the events in this story? Well, the Jewish people are saved. And by saving the Jewish people, what's God done? He's preserved the line through which he promised to Abraham a Messiah would be born. He's guaranteed the fulfillment of his promise to bless the whole world through the line of Abraham. So is this merely interesting tabloid fodder? No, it's providential sovereignty at work. At work despite a broken person who's using limited power for broken purposes, at work in a seemingly insignificant string of singular moments, and at work because a holy God is leveraging unlimited power for holy purposes. Let's go back to your conversation in the car. Your child says to you, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And you say, that's a great question, little Billy. I have no idea. And I don't know that we need to know if Adam and Eve had belly buttons. Let me tell you what we should know about Adam and Eve. And you talk about a God who lovingly creates. Your child says to you, does God drive a race car? And you say, No, and he doesn't need to. And let me tell you why. And you unfold the reality of a God who's omnipotent and present everywhere and would not need a race car. But if he wanted to, he could make the greatest one in the world's ever seen, but he just doesn't need one because he can be all places at all times. Your child says to you, is Jesus stronger than daddy? And you say, well, Daddy's not very strong. 
No, maybe, maybe you say daddy is quite strong. But let me tell you about the power of Jesus, a power to save. About a Jesus who actually surrendered the power of heaven to take on flesh. About a Jesus who willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father that the power of the cross might be displayed. Those questions that seem tedious and insignificant, any number of them could be the means by which God draws your child into relationship with him. It's easy for us to think about that in something as explicit as questions about God from your child. But what about all the random things that happen in your life? And I say random, ironically, because if Esther's going to teach us anything, it's that none of the moments are random. Any one of them could be the means by which God does something in the life of an individual, in the life of a group of people, in the life of a society that propels forward his promise to proclaim the greatness of the glory of the gospel to all the nations of the earth. You don't know when any one of those moments is. So why would we write any of them off? Why would we not throw the inner tube down in the stream of God's providence and sovereignty, hop on board and say, God, take me for the ride. I'm at your disposal. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I wanna end just with a quick story. I sent a text message to one of the members on our team in Western Asia. And I said, just tell me about how you became a follower of Jesus. And he said, you know, it's actually interesting. I was looking at a, a box of photos just the other day and there was a picture of me and on the back in my mom's handwriting, it said, My name, five years old, accepted Christ as Savior. And I was thinking about that day, and and I said, "What, what was it that led you to that? And he said, I think it was just a simple conversation with my dad, and I honestly don't even remember it. That's the power of what seems like an insignificant moment. A child at five years old places their faith in Jesus, spins a chunk of their life, trying to figure out what that looks like and what that means and discern calling. And then one day, God says to that five-year-old who's now an adult, I want you to go and proclaim the gospel among a group of people where less than 1% of them know Jesus. And now, in Western Asia, there's a church of those people who are learning how to proclaim the gospel to themselves. And God is propelling forward his purpose to proclaim the greatness of the gospel to all the people of the earth. No moment is insignificant. God is providentially present, omnipotently present, even where he's most conspicuously absent. So the next time your coworker or your child asks a question that seems off the wall and out of place about who God is, we seize that moment. The next time an interruption steps into our day, It feels like it's just derailing what it is we thought we were gonna do. We seize that moment because it could be the place where God starts a chain of events whereby he does something powerful for his purposes. Amen?